This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I, my topic is about free will and um, the, the brain indeed. So the Benjamin Libet experiments that we have just heard about uh, briefly. And um, before we look at the brain, though, I just want to zero out, zoom out a little bit, because I think part of the problem is indeed that we are focusing too much on the brain. And if you're just looking on the brain cells, you don't see what the question actually is. And so um, the experiment, of course, where it means in many ways or suggests that we do not have free will. And uh, I have heard from students indeed at UC Berkeley who get uh, confronted with that in their undergraduate studies and immediately they're convinced there's no free will. So I think there's a reason just to think about that and see what, what, uh, what to think about it. Um, it is also curious that we are living in uh, kind of a schizophrenia about that, uh, one of the many schizophrenias of the modern mind, I think, because at the same time, everybody thinks choice is the most important thing in our life. Choice and don't step on my freedom of choice and don't impose on me even your logic or anything else. It's the ultimate value that <clears throat> you are autonomous and you do whatever you want. Obviously, that doesn't go together. <laughs> if your brain makes you the choices for you, you are not free in these choices. So what does that even mean? And I think that's the first thing just, you know, confront people with and then ask, you know, how do we think about that? And I want to suggest at the end that Aquinas is a very balanced way of thinking about that. So, but this whole idea about choice, you know, we have that choice, let's say, and we have this kind of freedom. Then what do we do with that? Let's say, I mean, you can choose whatever you want. What actually are you going to do with that? And why is that even a question? If choice is its own end and goal, there shouldn't be a further question. Right? You choose for its own sake, and that's it. And yet, I don't think we are satisfied with that answer. Um, if I'd say, I just got to be me, you know, but the question is still, who, are, who am I? And perhaps even, who am I supposed to be? And people do have questions about that and feel rather disoriented um, in that scenario. And yet, there has been a very old uh, answer to that, that is, there is... Uh, that choice is a means, not an end. It is a means, and that means, uh, for what is it a means? And the answer is happiness. Nobody wants to be unhappy. We always choose something for the sake of something good. We never choose evil for its own sake. That wouldn't make any sense. You know? Evil is exactly uh, that which is against our interests. It is against um, that which would make us happy. Uh, whereas free will, we think, is a power, a power that helps us to achieve something, and that and to call that an achievement means to call it good. You know? And so it is, as you also may say with Aristotle, a teleological uh, kind of faculty. That is, it's a faculty because it has an end for which it operates. And so free choice must be seen uh, in that horizon. We want something uh, greater than the choice itself. We want something good. We want to be happy. And sometimes we can be even willing to forego our free choice if we can have it in other ways. That can even be problematic. You know, if people surrender, for example, their political freedom, um, because some government pro, uh, prom, um, promises to them that uh, they will provide whatever they want. So a big nanny state, perhaps, you know, that promises all the fun and games if only people surrender their choices. And indeed, just to stay with this political question, because we do talk about freedom and uh, free choices also in the political realm. And I think that helps to frame the question properly. Um, we can conceive of political freedom as a freedom from interference by the state in our private lives, right? So keep the state out, uh, I have my private life in which I make my private choices. So it's a freedom from interference. That still is a kind of a teleology because I then consider my happiness to be uh, my private life and the state is to stay out of it. 
If on the other hand, we think that we are communal and political animals, and for that reason we have then also language, we just talked about language, uh, that indeed we are not isolated private individuals, we may come to conceive of freedom somewhat differently. Then our good is not just our private life, but the common good in which we participate. And then we will understand freedom to be a freedom to participate in the public life. That is perhaps how the ancient Greeks understood it in Athens. And so uh, it is a freedom not from something, but the freedom to do something, namely to participate in the public life. And beyond that, we might discover something even more. If we talk about happiness, we might come to find that our ultimate happiness consists in our relationship with the first cause of the universe, with God himself, a goal beyond the whole world, a relationship to God and indeed a participation in God's very own life. And this is in fact what Aquinas understands freedom to be, a participation in God's very own life. That is the fulfillment of freedom, the telos of freedom, without which we cannot understand that. It's very important because I find that um, hardly any philosopher in the contemporary world even gets that in view in, somehow, in some way. So we have to understand freedom as a teleological faculty, and that is indeed how Aquinas understands it. Just to begin with the um, participation in God's life, that is what we call beatitude, that is heavenly bliss, that is eternal happiness. And Aquinas thinks once we are face to face with God, we cannot drop out of that happiness anymore. Indeed, philosophers and theologians like Origen, who suggested that we would go back to earth and go through the whole cycle again, Aquinas and Augustine think have totally missed that point, that it is part of happiness to know that you cannot lose it. You're not really happy if you are sort of always on the edge and think, oh, it's going back down again. And um, then you're actually happier when you're on earth. <laughs> and, um, but how are we kept in that bliss? Is it because God puts the screws on us and just makes sure we don't fall out of it, you know, left and right, you know, or put some wedges in there or something like that? No, it is by the very own teleology of our free will that we couldn't possibly want anything else because that is the fulfillment of our will. And for Aquinas, this is not so different from other entities. Let's say if I take this here you know, and I let it go, it falls down, right? How do we call that? Free fall, right? Why do we call that free? Is that just, you know, a, a provocation of some sorts? No, it's ex exactly the same sense, because this thing, by its nature, wants to go to a certain place, let's say the center of gravity. That's how Aristotle understands that. You know? And it's a natural place, as he calls it. Uh, we still don't have much better of an explanation for what gravity is, if you really ask the question. But uh, it is a free fall because it follows its teleology, its nature, and nothing obstructs it. Anything against that free fall Aristotle would call violence. If I throw it, they call it a violent motion. It's in that particular sense. Very important because I don't think we even have a concept of violence apart from this teleological understanding of nature. So we call that freedom. And um, Aquinas and also Augustine think that we also have that kind of center of gravity. But for us, it is God. Uh, St. Augustine says that our love is our weight. Amor meus pondus meus. We gravitate by our love to a particular place and that turns out to be God. So Augustine's famous saying that our hearts are restless until they rest in God has that precise meaning. Just as the stone rests in the center of gravity, so our heart rests in God. And that is the fulfillment of our freedom, even though we do not have a choice at that point anymore. Choice is not the essence of freedom. Choice is there as a means to achieve that ultimate end. And so we have to differentiate between the means and the end here. Both are part of how freedom looks like in our life, 
but we do not understand our free choices apart from that teleology. So now we can look at the brain. Um, so um, Professor Marie George already explained uh, these Benjamin Libet experiments, Libet L-I-B-T, L-I-B-E-T. She conducted in 1985 and uh, many successor experiments after that. And um, she explained, you know, you asked to wiggle your finger or something whenever you feel the urge to do so. And um, the clock will tell you that your brain, or they're looking at your brain in the meanwhile, and the clock will tell you that when you became aware of that urge, the brain already before that uh, reflects that. So before we make conscious choices, our brain uh, in our unconscious state has already made that choice for us. And as I said earlier, many people tend to be rather convinced by that. And uh, I think here we need some further reflection. Just uh, to begin with some preliminary observations that uh, one should not omit, I think, um, about, um, for example, the consequences of such claims. So people have made other experiments uh, where people were confronted with uh, these brain studies and then afterwards were giving a math test. And so those who were, uh, to whom this, these experiments had been explained before that were more likely to cheat on the test than before. So if you uh, don't believe in free will anymore, you're also likely to act like it, you know, as if you don't have that responsibility suddenly anymore. Now, other people say, well, but isn't it a good thing? So we have maybe more empathy with, uh, with criminals, perhaps, you know, because they, uh, they are, after all, victims only of their brains, too, and their genetics and their environment and nature and nurture and everything else. And so it's just the outcome of all these factors. And so we can empathize with them. And that's fair enough, and sometimes that is indeed the case. I mean, some people maybe uh, need more of sympathy than judgment. Um, but it goes both ways. So if every criminal is a potential victim, then every victim is also a potential criminal. And so what prevents us, let's say we are honing our ability to predict predict these readiness potentials in the brain and the genetics and so forth, maybe we can predict when somebody is going to uh, commit a crime. So we need, oh, it just came from the airport yesterday, I mean, why not scanners at the airport that predict, that scan your brain and predict that you're going to commit a crime or something like that too, and you will be arrested even before you have committed the crime, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you, guilt is not a question anymore because guilt doesn't exist. It's all a matter of uh, determination here. And so you get a background check for future crimes, maybe also in classrooms. I think it was a movie, a minority report, sort of a bit on that premise. So um, that can go, therefore, in, in many, many directions. There are also problems with uh, the measuring itself. Uh, so these fMRIs are apparently not that reliable, and maybe you can hear about that. Uh, before. And so um, Alfred Mealy, whom Professor George quoted, um, also says that these um, measurements are only 60% accurate. That is, they're barely more than chance. And so that amounts to just a slight bias or predisposition on which we perhaps not necessarily have to act. <clears throat> but um, that is for me not uh, a main point. I'll leave that to, leave that to the experts. Um, another problem is that uh, a conceptual problem about causality. So if these brain states precede our conscious choice, does that mean that the brain states cause the choice? That doesn't follow. You know, that something is followed by something else, even if regularly so, does not mean that one is the cause of the other. It's a big mistake of David Hume, for example, to think that. Um, I mean, night always follows day, but does that mean that the day causes the night? No, <laughs> you know, it does that regularly and all the time, but that's not a causal relationship. And that will actually be important, as I'll explain later, uh, for other reasons. Finally, again, in the preliminary kind of uh, section here, uh, it's odd how many people draw conclusions and perhaps hasty generalizations from pathological cases. 
So you have people looking at brain damage and see what people fantasize about their free choices or people with schizophrenia uh, sometimes attributing uh, agency to things that don't have agency. And maybe that's what we do all the time. We attribute agency to ourselves, and that's like we're being schizophrenic about ourselves or something like that. Is that really what we understand free will to be? Or looking at cases of automaticity, like automatic kind of actions, or anarchic or alien hand syndrome. Uh, maybe you know Stanley Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strangelove, that movie, you know, and he's always uh, trying to make the, the Hitler salute, you know, and uh, <laughs> he's very embarrassed by that and trying to keep his arm down. And, and so, now is that a paradigm of free will? Or if it were free will, I mean, we wouldn't be embarrassed by it. I mean, we would choose to do that, right? So, uh, and yet, there's so much in the literature that just um, says, here are pathological cases and confabulations of free will that doesn't really exist, and therefore, it's never free will. Now, but if that is true, then these theories themselves would be instances of confabulation or cases of pathology. That is... Um, one author says that on the brain physiological level, there is no distinction between conscious action, reflex, and disease. So physiologically speaking, there's no distinction. Well, what does that mean? That means that the science, that the neuroscience itself that makes that claim is indistinguishable from reflex and disease. Can you really claim that? Can you claim that and then claim your theory is true? Right? It's just an expression of pathology, perhaps. So I want to claim, and that's really my very uh, first major point, is that the very science, in the very act of denying free will, must claim it. You must be free to conduct your science in order to make a pertinent truth claim here. So um, if then scientific insights and mistakes both have neural correlates, how do we distinguish between the two? From what point of view do we differentiate between mistakes and true, uh, true claims? <clears throat> so um, let's take a point of Edmund Husserl, the phenomenologist. Uh, he talked about calculation machines, so they would talk about computers. Let's say you have two computers. And one always spits out 2 plus 2 is 4. And the other one spits out 2 plus 2 is 5. So what exactly went wrong? Did uh, the, the second one, did it just break the laws of electromechanics? No, <laughs> it cannot. These are laws of nature. They're descriptive laws that describe how things always happen. So which laws have been broken? It's the laws of mathematics. These are not uh, causal, kind of physical causal processes, but they are reasons. You know? uh, and they are con uh, um, arguments that we make based on concepts, syllogisms, and judgments, and they concatenate in a very different way from physical causes. And these are the ones that we use to evaluate the outcome. So just as with the two computers, it is with two brains. You know? So one brain might say 2 plus 2 is 4, the other 2 plus 2 is 5. Physiologically, as they say, there is no difference. You know? So we need to be, have, to be able to have a viewpoint from beyond these physical causalities in order to evaluate the results. The very fact that we make truth claims transcends physical causality. And so... We need to be able to make rational arguments for our claims, and that requires us to be free to follow the arguments and go where the premises lead us. These are logical steps, not physical steps or physiological causes. They are reasons, not causes. And so the very claim that science proves the non-existence of freedom is a self-contradiction cannot prove that, because um, then you're not free to prove anything, really. So it loses its own, uh, the validity of its own claim. So this is sort of the, the first point. The second point is that it's not only the truth of the claim which becomes problematic, but the very meaning 
of what it claims becomes unintelligible. What do you mean? So it claims that uh, the world is deterministic and therefore we do not have free will or brains that are determined by physical causes and so on. Um, now, what do we mean when we say deterministic? How do we define determinism? I would suggest that determinism is a derivative notion that presupposes freedom. So I, maybe you have other suggestions, but I mean, if you think long, think long and hard about it, determined, I think you would define as that which has no alternative possibilities. Determined is uh, defined by the negation of alternative possibilities. So it's defining necessity by the negation of possibilities. That means sort of in these modal categories of possibility, impossibility, necessity, um, actuality, and so forth, necessity um, is in a way derivative from possibility. Possibility is a more fundamental term in that sense. And the paradigm for these possibilities may very well be our own free will and the experience of our free choices. That in the way we conduct our life, we live in a horizon of possibilities that is wider than just what would be determined by other causes. So we live in this larger space of possibilities before, let's say, we go as scientists in laboratories and test, you know, um, the proposed kind of laws of nature that would be deterministic. In order to go into the laboratory and conduct these experiments, um, we need to be free. And first of all, just to understand what the determinism would mean that we claim them. So we always live already in this wider space in which we can meaningfully make claims of determinism. So Husserl and others would talk about that as the life world, you know, as this space of meaning and possibility um, of which the laboratory scenario is sort of um, a, a shrunken kind of um, um, compartment, if you want, and, and contained in it. It is for the sake of other things in the life world that we conduct these experiments in the first place. And it is from this life world that we enter into the experiments also um, before, before we find ourselves there. And that indeed has direct applications for this Benjamin Libet experiment. For example, the subjects that go uh, into a Benjamin Libet's uh, laboratory make that uh, take that step by free choice. They make a free choice to enter the experiment as participants. And that entails a number of things. For example, they promise uh, not to lie about what they experience. They make commitments to cooperate with the experimenter. They promise to report truthfully. Now, promising is an interesting kind of uh, thing to do. You know? uh, promising, uh, John Searle says, uh, creates desire-independent reasons for action. Promising creates desire-independent uh, reasons for action. Take marriage vows, religious vows. You know, you don't know how you feel 10 years from now about that, you know, but you have made a promise and that promise still holds and it gives you enough reasons to act on it, regardless of how you feel, regardless of if you urge to wiggle your finger or something like that. That is, promising cannot exist without freedom. You must be able to follow through on your promises and that means you need to be free from all the other circumstances that might get in the way. And if you are not free to make that promise entering into that experiment, then your data are unreliable. You don't know what you're going to say. You might lie about it too. Which has the consequence that your data cannot show that you are determined because then they would be unreliable. Right? So it's a self-defeating proposal in a way. But you only get that in view if you would take the step outside of the laboratory and see what happens before you enter into the experiment. And that's not typically what people look at. Which would be sort of my third point. I forgo writing it on the board here. <laughs> um, but um, maybe you can track that somehow. Um, 
Furthermore, fourth point, the very concept of free will, is that really something uh, that we find exemplified in the experiment? Benjamin Libet tells his subjects to act or wiggle the finger when they experience an urge to act or track it on the clock. Now, that sort of makes it into self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so Raymond Tellis um, says the experiment treats individuals as passive respondents to stimuli and then discovers that they are passive respondents to stimuli. <laughs> In a way, you don't even have to make the experiment. I mean, you can just expect that's going to happen. Uh, because is that really free will, this, this passive response to an emergent kind of urge? You know? Notice the passive formulation. They're asked to wait until this feeling or experience arises. That makes us passive bystanders and observers of an experience, not the doers or enactors of an intention. And Professor Marie George said, I mean, it's something we have to do ourselves. You know, it doesn't matter what else might be in play. Uh, if we don't do it ourselves, it's not a free act. So we cannot be passive bystanders of our own free acts. Now, much earlier in the 1930s, Walter Penfield made some experiments where they indeed poked the brain of people and made them do certain things. So among the things they could do is that to make them uh, raise their arms or something like that. And interestingly, I mean, the subjects would say, you did that, not I, right? They were quite able to distinguish between what it means to raise their own arm and somebody doing it by poking their brains, right? Likewise, you could uh, stimulate the brain so that uh, memories arose, involuntary kind of memories, but not beliefs. You cannot make be people believe something by stimulating the brain, apparently. And uh, that means you cannot, uh, there's a voluntary element in the very act of believing something. It's not a passive kind of occurrence. So the, the experiment, in a way, reduces um, free will to something involuntary, like an urge or a sneeze or vomit or something like that. You know? Is that really the paradigm of voluntary actions? Is free will something like a feeling? You feel the urge to do something. Does it really feel like something to make a free choice? Does it, uh, is there a feeling involved in thinking two plus two is four? Accidentally, perhaps, you know, but not really. You know? um, and likewise, I would suggest um, an act of free will is not necessarily uh, accompanied by feeling, let alone reducible to a feeling. It may not feel like anything at all. All feelings are passive. Feelings, in fact, are usually obstacles to free choices. They can get in the way, like temptations. And Thomas Aquinas would claim that we can resist all these feelings at once. That's what our free will entails. Otherwise, we are not free. So free will is not a feeling. And if it were, it would, of course, immediately be vulnerable to counter-arguments, and people have always made that. And you have said, oh, I can explain to you why you feel that. You know, it's your hormones or whatever happens in your brain or whatever else. Um, so that's a very... Uh, not a very good argument for free will to say, but I feel that I have free will and nobody can question that or something like that. It's not a feeling. Otherwise, you are vulnerable to these uh, debunkings. You know? So what then would free will look like or where do we find it? I would suggest an act of deliberation. Because there is no free will without an intellect that can deliberate about what the proper means are to this end and the ultimate end that we think about, as I said initially. There is no free will without rational deliberation. So, um, so thought experiment, let's say I put two envelopes in front of you. One contains one million dollar check and the other one contains your death sentence. Now choose. So you choose and lo and behold, it's your death sentence. What are you going to say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, we'd say, I didn't want that. And no, way they'd say, yes, you did. You chose it, right? Nobody forced you to take that envelope. That was your free choice, right? But you would not consider that an act of free choice because 
it must be an informed choice. So Kurt Gorney with Aquinas on formal cause and how the formal cause is the intellect and is involved in uh, free choices. But I think the point is uh, quite clear apart from that. I mean, you need to know what you are doing if it is to be a free choice. Deliberation is itself an indication of freedom, um, much more than any kind of urge or whatever else you might be looking for. Now notice, though, if you go back into Benjamin Libet's experiment, the subject is asked to wiggle the finger without planning ahead and without thinking. That's the explicit instruction. So the experiment purposely, by definition and instruction, eliminates a necessary condition for free choice. Now, so what, what does that experiment then show? And yet, as I just said earlier, it is in the background of the experiment in the life world that an actual choice of free will occurs, namely the choice to participate in the experiment in the first place. And that is planning ahead. That is giving it thought. It's precisely our decision in advance not to interfere with the urge where we are planning ahead and thinking. It's the decision not to interfere with something else that is not our decision, therefore. So that's the proper way of conceptualizing what is actually going on here. Now, um, Benjamin Libet's experiment, nevertheless, has a certain plausibility. There is a place for what it uh, conceptualizes or instantiates. Because many of our choices may be set up in similar ways. And this gets a bit back to what Professor Marie George said. So, for example, how did you get out of bed this morning? Well, maybe, uh, so you set your alarm clock and at a certain point the alarm rings. And now you have a choice. You can say, okay, I'm going to get up or I'm going to defy the world and everything else and my duty and stay in bed anyway, right? Mm -hmm. That's a choice. You can make that. You know? But how did you get out of bed? Did you get out of bed immediately? I don't know about you, but you know, I take, it takes me a while for my blood circulation to kick in and all that. But somehow, at some point, you find yourself outside of bed. You don't, don't quite know when and how it happened, really. Uh, but there you are, you know. And um, what happens then? You make, indeed, a choice. And presuming you're awake enough, you make a deliberate choice. But the execution of that choice, you left to something else. Your blood circulation, perhaps, or something like these readiness potentials in your brain. You know? And so um, there you find yourself. But is that a reduction of our freedom? No, because all these happenings are still governed by the free choice I made earlier. This is actually rather important, I think. Our very reflexes and readiness potentials are not necessarily an obstacle to our freedom, but it's tool and expression. We freely make use of our neuroplasticity and our readiness potentials for a whole range of actions in our life which do not require then constant re-deliberations. That's an important point I'll come back to in a moment. Now this is actually what some more recent experiments indeed have shown. Um, so as I said earlier, um, the, that something is followed by another thing, regu even regularly, does not mean that it's a causal sequence, you know, that's, that A is just the cause of B. Um, it may happen only in conjunction with and perhaps in a different kind of correlation than we think. In 2010, Aaron Chourget, I think maybe it's, I think it's a French name, to the National Institute of Health and Medical Research in Paris, um, uh, made experiments and came up with the following uh, idea. There are spontaneous fluctuations in our neural activity, electrophysiological noise that rises and falls. And... These are the ones that we use uh, if um, we have to make a choice that is inconsequential in exactly the sense that Mary George said earlier. Uh, nothing hinges on that. So like the two peanut butter jar. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just are confronted with that, how are you going to make a rational choice? It's like Buridan's donkey. I don't know if you've heard about that. So you just this donkey standing in the in the midst of a symmetrical world between two equally tasty haystacks. And that poor beast starves to death because there is no sufficient reason to choose one rather than another, right? 
and we might be just as well in the uh, in the scenario of the two peanut butter bars, or peanut butter jars, and uh, <laughs> or um, let's say uh, wiggling your finger. When are you going to do that? Is that is, does anything hinge on that? Not at all. So there's nothing else than let's like your urge take over and let it decide for you. And that's what we typically do. And that is itself a rational choice. It's not irrational. It is governed by a choice and says, all right, there's no further reason. So that's probably the, it's like a mental coin toss or something like that. And um, it just is not like uh, that this is the only way we choose all the time, but it is itself governed by a rational consideration, namely that there are no further considerations to be made. So um, now deliberation, therefore, is uh, the, the true indication of freedom, and it's a deliberation about this the means to this ultimate end, which is our ultimate happiness. And that indeed leaves us free from a whole lot of things, but not from everything. So there are exaggerated notions of free will that Thomas Aquinas also would not agree with. Like Jean-Paul Sartre, perhaps, you know, existentialist forms of freedom where we don't have even any nature anymore. You know, it's not... Uh, and ex existence precedes essence, he says. And so even our human nature and teleology is to be suspended. We can just be whatever we want. That's very much what you find in contemporary culture too. And Aquinas would not agree with that either. Aquinas has a rather circumscribed notion of free will. I think that's another side we also have to see, and that's what I want to talk about a bit in conclusion here. Um, so Aquinas will go through a number of aspects of our human anthropology to show uh, that certain things are not in our control, and it is rather commonsensical, right? So we have the power of locomotion. I can get up and walk around. You know? But can I run as fast as a cheetah? No, that's out of my range. So my free will, I can choose as much as I want. That's not going to happen, right? I cannot bilocate. I cannot levitate. You know, there are limits to even our faculty. Well, I mean, okay, <laughs> if you're achieving sainthood, maybe get might get you there. You know, but um, uh, but and angels can do that for Aquinas. They're poltergeists, perhaps. You know, uh, but uh, this uh, that's not in the range of what we as human beings can do in our nature. So there are limits to our free choice. We have no control over our vegetative system. It would be nice if we could digest by will, you know, sometimes it's, you know, uh, if that were under our control. Uh, we cannot control typically our heartbeat unless, you know, we have some kind of Indian Fakir abilities or something like that. Um, we cannot control our external sensation, like maybe, you know, some people can walk on glowing coals. I cannot, you know. Um, so things like that are not in our control. There are things in between, like breathing, you know, we can breathe voluntarily, but also involuntarily. So our human nature, there are these levels that Professor Marie George described, the sensitive, vegetative, and rational level. And um, for Aquinas, free will comes in indeed where rationality comes in. So whatever we choose about must be presented to us by the intellect as such a choice and deliberation. Uh, anything else has nothing to do with free will. Nor can we by free will control something in us if it is not also mediated by the intellect. So for example, your emotions, right? You cannot order yourself by free will to fall in love or feel hungry or whatever else is, or to get angry at someone, right? You have to work yourself up into it in some way. And that usually takes some kind of persuasion and, you know, getting some mental processes going, like in cognitive therapy to change your uh, feelings about things. But it's not subject to your free will directly. It is always by the interface of the intellect. Uh, and that puts certain limits on um, our uh, free will. And as we have heard earlier, too, there can be brain damage. Or if you didn't have your coffee in the morning or whatever else that can impede your ability to think, and in extreme cases, psychotic episodes or something like that, uh, your mind will be so confused that you cannot make a free choice anymore. Of course, it doesn't, uh, your deliberation is not going to work. And free will has to do with deliberation. So, um, 
That is one way in which Thomas Aquinas thinks of free will as limited. There's another one, and that is um, in the following way. So Thomas Aquinas did not know about a modern sense of laws of nature, like these mathematical laws of nature that people started to develop in the 17th century, like Newton and others. Um, and that is a real paradigm shift in which people conduct science and conceptualize nature. Um, and if these laws of nature work mechanically, then they are deterministic, and then they do indeed create a problem for free will. Um, does Thomas Aquinas have to say something on that? Well, I would suggest he does, because there is a curious analog here in what Aquinas thinks about the movements of the heavens. So all the ancients looked at the stars, even the old Chaldeans and so forth, and they saw the regular motions of the stars, and they could be predicted by a geometrical mathematical means. And so there is the kind of regularity that works in deterministic and predictable fashion, just as the laws of nature and laws of Newton or so would do in the 17th century. That was connected indeed to astrology. Now we think, oh, superstition. Yes. <laughs> You know, uh, but you know, uh, if you lived in the 13th century like Thomas Aquinas, that was the best available science. And so, if you would see that and you think that these stars have an impact on the Earth, I mean, the Moon obviously has an impact on the tides and things like that. Um, you will ask, you know, do these deterministic movements determine something here on Earth? And they were only out there for Aquinas. So, what happens in the 17th century? These these are moved from out there into uh, the earthly sphere. Right, and um, usually in the, from the celestial to the subatomic sphere, and then you can still ask, you know, if the laws of physics hold, what do they do to the physiology in my brain, and do they affect it, and so forth? I think it's it's really an analogous kind of case here, and so if you want to know what Aquinas would say to that, uh, this may be a place to look at, and so what does he say? Well, he does say that indeed the stars have an impact on our brain physiology. Today we think that about you know um, um, character types, Myers Briggs, or things like that, um, and uh, certain physiological, hormonal kind of constitutions in the brain that might be different from character to character and person to person. And people classify these in particular types, and the ancients have always done that and correlated that with certain um, uh, stars or planets, rather. So, uh, for example, the melancholic type. You know correlated with Saturn or something like that. Um, I think choleric is Mars. And so, um, and I tried to find correlations between these. Well, uh, it's at least analogous to what we might do if we say there are certain physiological configurations and they give us certain character types. You know, and they may therefore predispose us to act and react in certain ways. So they may impact our free will. Thomas Aquinas asks, do the stars determine our free choice? And there are many people who claimed that, especially in the early Christian centuries, not the Christians, but um, the, the, uh, the pagans, basically, and that had a long law back into the, all the way into the Middle Ages. And he quotes an ancient saying that the stars incline, they do not necessitate. Astra inclinant non necessitant. So they make us inclined to certain reactions, they predispose us, but they do not necessitate our choices. And Thomas Aquinas is rather surprisingly pessimistic about that. He says, for the most part, we will follow those kind of inclinations. And he says, only the wise will resist. And this may allow us to understand why there is a statistical predictability of free choices. So beginning in the 19th century especially, you have something like suicide statistics, criminal statistics, murder statistics. And um, you may ask, you know, if these are criminal activities, if it's a crime, then it must be your free choice. Then how can you predict it, right? So there's a real question there. Um, that arose for the first time in the 17th century. Um, and it was the Jesuits, um, 
yes, the Jesuits. Um, <laughs> but I picked actually something from quite as I would say in a moment. But uh, so they said, let's say if 1,000 inhabitants of Madrid, of 1,000 inhabitants, statistically one per day commits uh, a mortal sin, right? Let's say it's uh, 11.59 in the evening and nobody has committed a sin yet. Are you forced to commit that sin? <laughs> Something like that. And I said, no, it's not. It's a statistical paradigm. And that means it operates like rolling dice. If you roll dice, uh, you can roll it many times and you get, let's say you get sixes all the time. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean... Um, so that, that the, the final uh, roll of the dice is determined by that. No, it's completely independent because every roll of the dice is independent from each other one. Overall, collectively, there's a statistic, but not individually or distributively as the scholastics say. So each choice is free, but all choices together, something may go wrong. Right? And Aquinas is sort of like Murphy's Law. I mean, whatever can go wrong eventually will go wrong. So um, there will, will be some um, defects happening. And in fact, he says, even if we are in the state of grace, we cannot avoid all venial sins. And if we are not in the state of grace, we cannot avoid all mortal sins. But we can, perhaps even with effort in this in the last case, um, avoid individual mortal sins but eventually we are so weak that we are going to fall. And he very realistically and um, uh, commonsensically says that's when, what happens when you're caught by surprise, for example. And we don't have time to deliberate. We just react on the impulse that we have developed or when we are stressed or when we are multitasking and so forth. It's in those moments that we don't have the ability to take the step back and deliberate as a wise person can. So only the wise will resist that. Now, this is very contemporary, uh, very contemporary application. So Amazon.com is going to predict your choices. <laughs> you know? And uh, they do exactly what you want before you know that, like Benjamin Livett's experiment, right? I mean, you might not even be aware that this is something you like, that the algorithms have already figured that out. You know? Well, that's rather eerie, right? I mean, what happens to our free choice there? Well, it's, it's similar to that. You know? There's a predictability, but we can. We don't have to act on that. But it takes us to take a step back and not just act on impulse or reflex, just to click on a clickbait on the internet. Um, but none of that would have surprised Thomas Aquinas. He was quite aware of that. Now, this is about things that can be predicted because they come from impulse or um, other kind of uh, unreflective kind of features. There's a further way in which we are predictable. And even the wise man is predictable in that way because it is about the rationality of our choice, not about our weakness of reason, but about the strength of our reason. There are rational choices that are predictable precisely if you are wise. So, for example, if you're hungry, maybe you are getting <laughs> So you have a central inclination for food. That is a prima facie re reason for eating. It's a good reason to eat if you're hungry, right? Mm -hmm. Unless something speaks against that. You know? Further deliberations might tell you it's better to fast because it's Lent or you're on a diet or something like that. You know? There are overriding reasons. So, and it may be that a wise person has more reasons of that kind to step back from the immediate impulse. But all things being equal, it is rational to choose to eat. And that is predictable. Does that mean that there is no free choice? No, it's a rational choice. It's deliberate and it's good for us and we know it and that's why we choose it. And yet it is predictable. Um, also, there are certain ways in which we are predictable that are not uh, against free will. Namely, when we have habitualized certain motions. So if you think of how many free choices you have made today, there may not be that many. Let's say you're driving to school or something like that. You probably have a certain routine that you have to develop, you know, and, uh, and if you drive a car, you don't even think, I mean, if you do drive stick shift, you know, how to just move the stick. I mean, that, that's just, you know, you do that automatically in a way. Um, or if you play tennis, you know, 
do you make a deliberate choice to hold your hand in a certain kind of way when you <laughs> strike the ball? No, you probably would lose, right? If you were way too slow, right? But does that mean you're not free? Does that mean you are playing tennis against your free choice? No, you freely chose to engage the game, like Benjamin Libet's experiment too, and then let your reflex, your trained reflexes take over because you have these reflexes only because of previous choices to train yourself in the game of tennis, right? Or if you just write a text with your hand, right? I mean, you don't deliberately make a choice of, of each letter. You know, I read a textbook that said, you know, if you're free will, then you have to have to do that too. That's nonsense. Nobody ever claimed that. You, uh, you trained yourself deliberately to learn that and then becomes a skill or habit, as Thomas Aquinas would say, that you can use. And to do so makes you freer. It may make you more predictable too, but it makes you actually free because your free choice governs a whole range of actions now that it didn't before. There are whole parts of your life that are governed by free choice that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't trained yourself in that way. Which means the older that you get, the more responsible you are for the context in which you live and the kind of character that you have developed. It is your own and you're responsible for it. It's an indication of your free choice. If um, as, a, as a child, you don't have that. So as a child, you may not be as free precisely for that reason. Because the, um, the preceding kind of things that you haven't chosen and you have to develop your good actions and uh, good habits in the first place. So all of these will participate in your freedom and be part of who you are. They become second nature, a second nature formed by your free choices, by a kind of a self-formation. Our acts are not atomic and um, separate from each other. They have a history and uh, they are governed by whole patterns of our life that we ourselves develop. And therefore, the, the distinction between those reflexes and our free choices, that's not a zero-sum game. You know? It's not like uh, our free will begins where our habits end. <laughs> no, the habit is an expression of our free choices. And the longer we live, the more we have of those. You would be able to predict, if she were still alive, that Mother Teresa is not going to kill you. Does that mean that she was less free? <laughs> You know, that she has lost free will? Not at all. She was that because that's a moral skill. And that is also something we develop deliberately through all the choices all across our life. And that you can only understand if you understand that free will is a teleological faculty, that it is meant for this ultimate happiness, which is correlated with moral goodness. These uh, habits that we develop are therefore not an obstacle to our free will, they elevate us beyond it, they elevate us beyond, beyond the humdrum of life and give us a larger vista of choices than we have to make on this larger scale still. And they liberate us from sin and um, all the kind of features that make us stuck in that world. So it makes us free indeed to choose the greater good, ultimately our happiness as it befits a wise person. So this sets us free, even though the greatest good of all is beyond our choice, for we all seek happiness and we all seek God. Thank you. You used up my time, but if you have questions, yeah, if just a very few, we can still talk later too. But some immediate reactions, perhaps, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what would we look for in an experiment? Like, obviously, I agree with you that this lip experiment doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't prove what it, what it claims to prove, but is there anything we would look for in an experiment that would, you know, disprove free will, or that's something outside of the realm of experimentation completely? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, how would we construct an experiment that disproves that? Um, it may not be possible in a straightforward way, um, similar to any experiments couldn't show that there's no soul, as <laughs> Mr. George said earlier. And it's not, I would have to think about that. I, I cannot think about it. I mean, maybe you have some ideas, you know, and we can look at that in the panel again, but immediately it doesn't, nothing comes to mind how I would do that. Yeah. Uh, thank you, we're first in the back.
Yes, you. Thank you. I got that. I got a question about the connection between freedom and happiness. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, um, I, I'm more sympathetic with the position that freedom is necessary for the sake of love and, and loving God. But technically, that's, that doesn't have to be necessary for happiness. That other creatures, other non rational creatures, their happiness does not consist in loving. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it is strictly speaking necessary for a rational creature. Creatures' happiness to consist in loving. That was a choice that God made. We could have been happy in other ways. We did have to partake in God in such a direct way, in such a loving way, for our happiness to be achieved. That is more than what our nature requires. Mm -hmm. So, why, why is the emphasis of freedom placed on happiness rather than on love? Because love then it just becomes like necessary for love to have freedom. Otherwise, it's not love. It's uh, yeah, well, I, I just don't see the clear connection. Uh -huh. But I do think there is a connection. Uh, so one may perhaps even claim you know, that, that the stone is happy enough. <laughs> to, to, I mean, uh, whitehead, you know, might say that too. But that's uh, anyway. Uh, so we are happy because our nature is fulfilled. Now, our nature contains a number of things. So. Uh, as spiritual creatures, unlike the stone or an animal, uh, we have an intellect and we have free will. And so that also needs to be fulfilled and primarily fulfilled. And um, Aquinas thinks if that's fulfilled, everything else just sort of trickle down, if you want, into our uh, body even. And once it is resurrected. Um, so, but what does that consist in? Well, the intellect sees God face to face. And Aquinas has a very strong notion of that. It's the, the very essence of God informing our mind. We cannot get closer than that, right? Um, and that makes our mind fulfilled. But as I said, our choices and our, the action of our will happens after that. Because it depends on deliberation or knowledge. You know? So you cannot love what you don't know, Aquinas would say. So if you know God, you will love them and that's him. And that's intrinsically true. And that is what constitutes our happiness. So it's the happiness that fulfills the mind and the will. And Aquinas says that um, the act of the will at that point will take the form of joy. Not of choice, but of joy. But that's a genuine expression, on the ultimate expression of what the will is about. And in that sense, loving God is not an extrinsic kind of addition to what it means to be happy. It's intrinsic to who we are, I think. Yeah, but the opposite will happen. Because we have a spiritual being that will, uh, so Aquinas thinks that's not possible. So if you have uh, an intellect, you must have a will too. And well, it's a question of how exactly to explain that, but he thinks the form in our mind uh, assimilates us to something and moves us in that direction. There needs to be faculty that actually uh, achieves that. Uh, but you can, for example, um, analogize that with uh, animals that have sensation, unlike plants, typically also have locomotion. Because otherwise, the sensation would be, uh, either of these wouldn't make sense without each other, right? I mean, so if you have sensation, you see a predator coming, but you cannot run away. Well, it doesn't do you any good. It just makes you anxious, right? Um, or if you have locomotion, but you don't have sensation, you're running in the next tree. That's also not helpful. So there needs to be something that correlates the cognitive and the appetitive or um, emotional kind of features in your, in your soul. And so in any case, Aquinas would say that uh, if you construct an, um, an intellectual, intellectual being that doesn't have a, a free will, it doesn't make sense. And he says that especially about God. That's why he says God also has free will. Yeah. yeah. One more question, please. Yes. Thank you. So I'm interested in a claim, and please correct me if I am... Uh, misinterpreting what you had said, um, that some of our um, some of our base emotions in the moment are not necessarily made by a deliberation of free will. We don't necessarily have complete control over an immediate reaction of hatred, love, etc. Uh, I'm interested in the implications of that for the relation of free will to the soul. I guess I would ask, um, is are all three decisions the consequence of, of the soul? Uh, and to that end, is everything the soul participates in a free decision? Can you repeat the first part of that last sentence? Sure. So there, there are two questions which are kind mm -hmm. of converse of each other. Yeah. Uh, the first question is, uh, 
is every free decision we make uh, a consequence of the soul? Does the soul participate in every free decision we make? Mm -hmm. And then the second question would be, uh, is every decision in which the soul is a part a free decision? Yeah. So uh, consequence of the soul, uh, you can take that in different ways. I mean, can, first of all, Aquinas would say that we have free will as a consequence of having a rational soul. You know, it emanates from that soul, he thinks. Then we have this power of free will. Uh, but the consequence can also be taken in the sense, uh, he says, actionis um, sunt suppositorum, so we attribute actions to the suppositor or the subject of that action, and that is us, and the, the soul, therefore. You know? So the free will is not an entity that wanders around on its own and makes choices, it's we who make choices by that free act, and therefore you can say, yes, you can attribute that to the soul. You know? um, so that is... In the second part, you said, I think, uh, if something comes from the soul, therefore it's free. Is that what you said? Yes, I, I, I guess I'm getting at if, if the uh, if the base experiences of love, hatred, etc. are not necessarily free decisions, mm -hmm. uh, are they still decisions that are intimately connected to and emanate from our soul? Yes, they do. And uh, so not every, that's what I try to say. I mean, Aquinas does have limitations on that, and they come from our very nature itself, not just from external circumstances. And that means um, my digestion you know, comes from my soul too. It's one of the powers of the soul, but they're not subject to free will and I cannot be accused for digesting things. <laughs> Maybe I digest something valuable or something, right? Uh, if, I, if I didn't swallow it by, by my voluntary action, I, and I could be held accountable for it. Uh, so not everything that comes from the soul uh, is attributed to free will or we are responsible for it. Uh, lunch, uh, lunch. We're talking about digestion. Yeah, yeah, talking about digestion. <laughs> <laughs>